Well, after that introduction, I should take the wise course and just not talk, uh, because I'm bound to be a disappointment after that. Um, it's wonderful to be here with you. It's wonderful to be here with Anna and uh, with her husband, Michael, who is, teaches at the law school here at Villanova and who is another former student of mine at Boston College and, in Michael's case, also in his undergrad days at Notre Dame. I was a member of that faculty in the years when he was an undergrad. Uh, I must say, uh, you do practice extremes of temperature. Uh, the last time I was here, the reason that we canceled the afternoon lecture was it was the coming of that last dreadful snowstorm that uh, hit. And uh, I had to get back to Boston, and it looked as if I'd never get back for two or three days if I stayed. And so I got the last Acela Express out from uh, from. Uh, Philadelphia, and I left the station exactly as the first snowflake fell outside the train window. It was a very dramatic escape. Uh, and here I am uh, on what certainly feels like the middle of summer out there today. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. Well, now, what am I going to talk with you about this afternoon? I'm going to talk with you really about three things. First, I want to say something about the purpose of a university. Not, please notice at this point, specifically a Catholic university, any university. This would be true of Villanova, but it would also, I think, be true of the University of Pennsylvania, what I'm going to say about, or what I, I hope it would be true about, uh, what I'm going to say about universities. The second thing I want to talk about is um, what it is that, uh, how you foster, what it is that needs to be done to foster that vision of a university. And I'm going to suggest that that falls under the very broad but all-important heading of conversation. And then finally, my third point is, okay, what's so important about there being Catholic universities in light of what you're saying about universities in general and about conversation? So those are our three points. But I begin by citing no one less than the President of the United States. Uh, as I listened a year ago this past February to President Obama give his first uh, State of the Union message to Congress, I was struck by many things. I agreed with many things. I was excited by many things, he said. But I was alarmed by something he said. And that was what he had to say specifically about higher education. The President said in the course of that speech a year ago this past February, in a global economy where the most valuable skill you can sell is your knowledge, a good education is no longer just a pathway to opportunity, it is a prerequisite. Right now, three quarters of the fastest growing occupations require more than a high school diploma. And yet, just over half of our citizens have that level of education. We have one of the highest high school dropout rates of any industrialized nation, and half of the students who begin college never finish. This is a prescription for, the, for economic decline, because we know the countries that outteach us today will outcompete us tomorrow. And the president underscored this by what really was a, a remarkable statement, I thought. He said, quote, it is our responsibility as lawmakers and educators to make this system work. 
but it is the responsibility of every citizen to participate in it. Now just think about that for a moment. It's the responsibility of every citizen to participate in higher education. That's quite a statement. And so tonight, I ask every American to commit to at least one year or more of higher education or career training. This can be community college or a four-year school, vocational training, or an apprenticeship. But whatever the training may be, every American will need to get more than a high school diploma. And dropping out of high school is no longer an option. It's not just quitting on yourself, it's quitting on your country. And this country needs and values the talents of every American. So the claim that is being made is that not only is it to, to each individual's profound advantage to pursue higher education, it is a disloyal to the nation. It injures the community at large if you drop out of high school, if you don't pursue your education beyond high school. Now, I applaud all of that. I think that's wonderful. The president and I are exactly on the same page. I'm sure down in Washington, the president breathes a sigh of relief to know that, uh, that I agree with him. Uh, but let me point out, yeah, I can agree with what he's saying about its importance, but not for the reason he gives. I sincerely hope that as a result of your education, all of you who are students now, in a few years, are making oodles of money. And that you take all of that money and just dump it back into the Alumni Association here at Villanova. Um, but that's not what universities are for. Universities are not employment agencies. They're not designed to get people jobs. They're not designed to make us competitive as a nation. All of those things may happen, and if they do, they're perfectly wonderful, but they're side effects. They're not what's central. What is a university, and what is it for? Well, to try and address that question, I want to cite the work of someone that is now 150 years old. Back in the 1850s, John Henry Newman undertook to be the first president of what was supposed to be a new national Catholic university in Dublin, in Ireland. It was a very unhappy experience for Newman. Uh, it turned out that the people who were backing the development of the new university really had a quite different vision in mind. Perhaps a vision in some ways closer to the one the president is citing. They saw it as a way to formulate a new, prosperous, Irish Catholic middle class. And that isn't what Newman thought he was doing at all. He certainly had no objection to that, but he didn't think that that's what a university was to be for. And in the course of the years that he spent in Dublin as president of this new university, Newman gave a series of addresses over the course of several years about the nature, purpose, work of a university that was subsequently collected and published as his book, The Idea of a University. Many people, many very distinguished figures indeed, have in the course of the last century and a half cited Newman's book as probably even at this point, the classic work on, on uh, liberal education in the English-speaking world. Uh, people like Yaroslav Pelikan and Jacques Bazin have both cited it as probably the finest statement about the meaning, purpose, nature of a university that they know. Well, this is in many ways one of Newman's years. 
to those of us who love him and, and work on him a great deal, every year is a Newman year. But this year is a very special year for Newman because at this coming fall, he will be officially beatified by the church. I want to focus on that idea of the university to see what Newman says about it. And first of all, let me quote this passage about what a university is. The view taken of a university in these discourses, Newman wrote, is the following, that it is a place of teaching universal knowledge. The all-important words there are teaching and universal, as you'll see. This implies that its object is, on the one hand, intellectual, not moral. Now, that's very important because Newman is going to suggest, as we'll see, that um, while it's a very good thing that there be Catholic universities, while it's a very good thing for the church that it is engaged in the work of higher education, while it's a very good thing he thinks for a university to be engaged with the church, the fact is that the church and the university have different goals. The church is not first and foremost about producing intellectuals. It's about producing people who are, to use Newman's word at this point, moral. That's a great and important task. We at the university applaud it. It's just not what we do. That there is a real difference between the university and the church. So the first is, he says, its object is on the one hand intellectual, not moral. And on the other, it implies that it is the diffusion and extension of knowledge rather than the advancement which is central to it. In other words, in that often discussed question, how do you put together scholarship at research with teaching, Newman comes down squarely on the side of teaching. That it, while he thinks research is important within a university context, it's always research for the sake of teaching. It's not a question of, I'm really a researcher and I teach because, well, I have to keep the administration happy and get them to send me a check. Um, but what I'm really interested in is my research. Newman deplores that. He doesn't think that's, scholarship is wonderful, but that's not what the university is for. It's first and foremost about teaching, says Newman. If its object was scientific and philosophical discovery, Newman goes on, I don't see why a university would bother to have students. And if it were religious training, then I don't see how it can be the seat of literature and science. Now, there are really three things that need to be noticed in this opening statement of Newman's. First, as I just mentioned, the university is a teaching center, not a research center. I certainly suspect that Newman would recognize the validity of research universities as universities only if it is clear to everyone involved faculty, students, and administration, that the research is done in service of the teaching offered. But it's the teaching that's central as far as Newman is concerned. The second important point to notice is the university or college is not designed for religious education. Newman certainly didn't think that religion was opposed to liberal studies, uh, but what, what he calls literature and science they, not religious training, have their quote-unquote seat in the university. And thirdly, and this is actually what he's going to spend most of the book talking about, a university teaches universal knowledge. That may seem an obvious enough claim, but Newman gave more attention to it than to either of the other two points because he so, thought it so directly affected the end product of the university or college. 
what is that end product? What does Newman think a university is supposed to produce? If it's not producing people who are going to be competitive in the labor market, if it's not producing people who are going to build the gross national product, with all due respect to President Obama's speech of a year ago, February, uh, if that's not what it's about, what is it about? What is it that it's supposed to be producing? And Newman's answer is famous. He says it produces gentlemen. Now, uh, I have not the slightest doubt that he would want me to include women in that at the present moment. So he will say gentlemen and gentlewomen. That's what it's designed to produce. What did he mean by gentlemen or gentlewomen? What did, he, what did he mean by the phrase? Well, he gives a very famous, often quoted description, which he summarizes as such a person, a gentleman or gentlewoman, is one who never willingly causes another pain. That that's what is, a, 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 is the mark of the product of a university. A person who never willingly causes another pain. Now, he doesn't simply mean people who come out of universities shouldn't be rude, they should be well-mannered, they should be polite, they should be considerate. He certainly thinks all of those things. But what he means is they shouldn't be sources that are disharmonious. They shouldn't be people who cause friction within the development of the minds and opinions, the thinking of others. Um, there are, it's best seen what he means by a gentleman if we contrast it with what he thought were the two uh, possible distortions of the idea by a university. One is that you have a lot of people who dabble in a lot of different fields. They go to a university and they read a little English and they study a little history and they do some physics and they spend a little time in chemistry. Uh, and. Uh, the, dabble in, math in mathematics, take a glance at economics, and when they are finished, they know a little bit about a lot of things and nothing much about anything in particular. Um, some of you may know the old line about, remember Newman spent much of his adult life at Oxford. Um, you may know the old line, uh, it's people at Oxford are fond of telling, and so are the folks at Cambridge, about one another. That the difference between Oxford and Cambridge is that at Oxford, they teach you more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing, whereas at Cambridge, they teach you less and less about more and more until you know nothing about everything. <laughs> um, well, it's that kind of thing that Newman is concerned about. People who have dabbled it so much that they really don't know anything in particular. This leads to what Newman calls nice phrase on his part, viewiness. People who have views on all sorts of things. What is your view of uh, the health care legislation? Well, I think that's it. Well, what is your view of the new, um, the new treaty that we are just signing with, uh, with Russia? Well, I, on that I think, well, the fact is most of us don't think about it at all. Most of us just have views, ideas, opinions. Newman thinks that this is one of the great uh, drawbacks of the 19th century, his century, was that it encouraged people to be, as he says, viewy, to have opinions on everything, but no really firm, fixed principles about anything in particular. Imagine 
what he would make of the 24-hour news cycle now, of talking heads who have to have opinions on absolutely everything within five minutes of its first being reported. Newman would have thought it was viewiness run right out of its mind. So what we need are to ground people more carefully in principles, to show people how to think about issues, not merely to offer opinions or views or ideas without being able to describe how those opinions are arrived at and what those opinions uh, might signify, how you could defend and, uh, and support those opinions. The other extreme was what he described as, well, let me read it to you. He describes this as the man of one idea. Men, and we certainly would include women, whose life lies at the cultivation of one science or the exercise of one method of thought, have no more right, though they often have more ambition, to generalize upon the basis of their own pursuit, but beyond its range, than the schoolboy or the plowman to judge of the prime minister. But they must have something to say on every subject, habit, fashion, the public require it of them, and if so, they can only give sentence according to their knowledge. You might think this ought to make such a person modest in his or her enunciations. Not so. Too often it happens that in proportion to the narrowness of knowledge is not distrust of it, but the deep hold it takes on a person the absolute conviction of his or her own conclusions and positiveness in maintaining them. He or she has the obstinacy of the bigot whom he scorns without the bigot's apology, that he has been taught, as he or she thinks, doctrine from heaven. Thus he becomes what is commonly called a person of one idea, which properly means a person of one science, and of the view partly true but subordinate partly false, which is all that can proceed out of anything so partial. We all know people like that. People who will tell you that whatever the issue is, finally it all comes down to economics. It's all really explicable by genetics. It's all really a matter of chemistry. It's all really mathematics, that if you simply know this field, you really know what needs to be known about all fields. It is, Newman likes the phrase, person of one idea. I prefer the nice, simple American phrase, crank. It's a person who is a crank, who has one vision of reality and crams everything else into that vision. Those are the two, two extremes, those who who are not gentlemen or gentlewomen, in Newman's phrase. People who are either marked by viewiness, they have ideas on lots of things, but no principles about anything, or cranks. People who can see everything from the perspective in which they are trained and cannot imagine that there could be any other perspective or way of viewing things. What then does a university do? A university is a place that leads people into an exchange between people who are expert, who are rigorously well-trained in a particular field, but who feel answerable to all other fields, who don't try to interpret everyone else's field in terms of their field, but to bring their field into interchange with all of those other fields. 
I cannot not quote this passage because it is so good on Newman's part. It is a great point then to enlarge the range of studies which a university professes, even for the sake of the students. And though they cannot pursue every subject which may be open to them, they will be the gainers by living above those and under those who represent the whole circle of studies. This I conceive to be the advantage of a seat of universal learning considered as a place of education. An assemblage of learned men and women, zealous for their own sciences and rivals of each other, are brought by familiar intercourse and for the sake of intellectual peace to adjust together the claims and relations of their respective subjects of investigation. They learn to respect, to consult, to aid each other. Thus is created a pure and clear atmosphere of thought which the student also breathes, though in his own case he only pursues a few sciences out of the multitude. The student profits by an intellectual tradition which is independent of particular teachers, which guide him in his choice of subjects and duly interprets for him those which he chooses. He apprehends the great outlines of knowledge, the principles on which it rests, the scale of its parts, its lights and its shades, its great points and its little, as he otherwise cannot apprehend them. Hence it is that his education is called liberal, a habit of mind is formed which lasts through life, of which the attributes are freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation, and wisdom, or what in a former discourse I have ventured to call a philosophical habit. This, then, I would assign as the special fruit of the education furnished at a university, as contrasted with other places of teaching or modes of teaching. This is the main purpose of a university in its treatment of its students. It's allowing people by entering into, as he says, familiar intercourse, into daily rubbing shoulders with people who speak from, from deep roots within particular fields of expertise, particular sciences, particular fields of investigation, but who are endlessly, again to use Newman's phrase, adjusting the way the, their field relates to those other fields as they uh, try to bring about a, uh, a peaceful and ordered community within the university. That's how the gentleman or the gentlewoman is formed. Now there's an obvious problem with that from our point of view. Newman thought it was difficult in his time. If he thought it was difficult, imagine how difficult it is for us. Because just think what it means today to try and talk about bringing all of those fields into some sort of community above themselves. Let me just use my own field as an example. I'm a member of a large theology department at Boston College. I have colleagues who are involved professionally and in their teaching in the study of the Hebrew scriptures, and of course of the New Testament, of the Christian scriptures, of people who are involved in the study of Buddhism, who have great expertise in Islamic studies, or in Hindu studies, people who have great expertise in Judaica. I also have colleagues who are engaged in teaching medical ethics, and therefore are very much involved with all of the sort of cutting edge questions today in biology and in medical science. 
I have people who are engaged in uh, social justice studies and who are very much involved, therefore, with political issues and with legal questions. I also have people who are engaged in classical philosophical, uh, philosophical theology, systematic theology, history of doctrines, history of dogma, church history. Um, now, I have people who study the history of liturgy and contemporary liturgical celebration. How do you bring somebody who spends all day studying 3,000-year-old Hebrew texts into a fruitful conversation with somebody who's preoccupied by the latest questions in genetics? If you can hardly get people within the theology department to talk to one another in any meaningful or intelligible way, how in heaven's name do you get people representing the theology department to talk to people in physics? or in uh, chemistry, or in economics. It looks as if, precisely because the fields are so big and so all-encompassing today, that it becomes almost impossible to bring about that kind of interchange that Newman is talking about. How can it be done? How is it possible? I want to suggest one possibility, an important word. And that word is um, conversation. At least one notable Catholic a few years ago insisted that it was indeed possible for a university to bring about this kind of easy interchange. That person was uh, Pope John Paul II. In his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, he wrote, We therefore wholeheartedly declare ourselves convinced that it is possible to reach a single ordered vision of knowledge. Well, with all due respect to the recent pope, I'm very glad he's convinced of it, but can he convince us? How is it done to bring about that one ordered vision? Nicholas Lash, distinguished uh, British Catholic theologian and dear personal friend, writing about that statement of Pope John Paul II, has said, notwithstanding the immense difficulty which participants in different cultures and traditions or different academic schools and styles and disciplines regularly experience at reaching common understanding, to insist that in this sense of the unity of truth is to insist that failure to reach such understanding is not, in principle, inevitable. Well, knowing Nicholas and Nicholas's careful style, the all-important phrase there is, in principle. It's not, in principle, impossible to say that one can arrive at this philosophical habit of mind, that you're quite right, Thomas Augustine, you're quite right. <laughs> I would say exactly the same thing. Um, that it's not in principle impossible to arrive at this, what Newman called, philosophical habit of mind, of seeing how all of these pieces might, as it were, come together. Not in principle, but is it in practice able to be done? That's Lash's question. How in, pra in principle, perhaps, how in practice is it done? And I suggest that you can only answer a question about practice with a practice. That what needs to be done is, to, is the attempt at conversation. Now, let me turn away from John Henry Newman and turn to that redoubtable authority, Michael James Hines.
Uh, every year for the last 10 years, I've had, I've had the privilege of being asked to speak at the orientation of new students during the summer uh, for the new students, their parents at Boston College. And I always begin by giving them Heinz's handy dandy definition of a university, which is rigorous and sustained conversation about the great questions of human existence among the widest possible circle of the best possible conversation partners. Now, there are a couple of things I'd like you to observe about that definition slash description of a university. First, please notice I'm not describing it as a place. A university is not somewhere you go. It's an activity. It's something you do. It's conversation, rigorous and sustained conversation. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to rule out any notion of having a chat. We're not talking about passing the time of day, keeping the conversational ball afloat. I mean, none of us get to this stage in our lives without having some skill at doing that. That's not what I'm talking about. Think of the times when you have spoken about something of enormous importance to you with people who are also of enormous importance to you. Those moments are transformative, but they're also exhausting. Real conversation is immensely hard work. It is no accident that conversation comes from the same root in Latin as conversion. Conversion in Latin being a change of direction. You see, that's what you do in a conversation. You're forever changing direction. I try to understand what I'm experiencing, thinking, feeling, that I want to communicate to you. And then, having done that, I have to, as it were, come around to try and hear myself the way you hear me. So that I understand your response, your reply to what I say, and then I come back and try to respond to it, and try to hear it from your point of view and respond. It's constant conversion. It's a whole series of ongoing changes of direction, as it were. That's what any rigorous and sustained conversation is. About what? About the great questions of human existence. Well, we could talk about that at great length. It sounds terribly pretentious to talk about the great questions of human existence. But I think all of us have, uh, could come up with an agenda of the things we think you really have to talk about at some point in your life if you're going to lead a really valid and valuable human life. Aristotle famously suggested that there were three. What is a human being? What is the good life for a human being? And how do you organize communities to make that kind of life possible for human beings? Those are three whopping good questions. You know, I mean, Aristotle knew whereof he spoke. Those, those are very serious issues that at some point we need to address. But there have been plenty of other lists. Immanuel Kant, 200 years ago, suggested that the, the great questions are, what can I know, what must I do, what may I hope for? Also, excellent set of questions. A little too much I and no we in there, but what do you want? 18th century enlightenment, very, very individualist. Um, but very important questions that need to be discussed. So rigorous and sustained conversation about those great questions of human existence about the widest possible circle of the best possible conversation partners. Noting that very often the best conversational partners don't happen to be breathing at the present time. That often the best conversational partners happen to be dead. Aristotle and Kant being two examples. John Henry Newman being another example. Uh, but uh, I did, as 
Anna mentioned, I did my uh, graduate work at the University of Chicago, and so I lived in Cook County in Illinois. And I like to say that the kind of conversation that I'm describing a university as being is like uh, voting in Cook County. Death does not interrupt the process. Um, the mere fact of being dead doesn't revoke the, the uh, right to vote in Chicago. And, um, and that's true in terms of this conversation. The mere fact that someone is dead doesn't rule them out of the conversation. Some of the most interesting conversation partners don't happen to be breathing at the moment. For example, and I say this not simply because I'm at a distinguished Augustinian university, but uh, because this is genuinely true. For 40 years and better, the most important conversation partner I've had is Augustine. The mere fact that Augustine is dust for 1,500 years is quite beside the question. As I like to say to students, Augustine is infinitely more real to me than any of you are. Um, I mean, I know a lot more about Augustine. I know how he felt when his teenage son died. I know how he thought about his common law marriage breaking up, how he felt about the death of his parents. I know about his very rough adolescence. I know, I know what his favorite color was. It was red. Uh, I know that he was tone deaf, couldn't carry a tune. Uh, I know that he uh, had an extremely sensitive uh, sense of smell. He's, that's why he says you could never write on a day when they were break, baking bread because he got distracted by the aromas from the kitchen too easily. Uh, I know all those things about Augustine. I don't know anything like that about you. You are very vague, very shadowy, very insubstantial. Augustine is very real, very vital, very alive. The mere fact that your heart's beating and his isn't, quite beside the point. Um, so very often, the best conversation partners just don't happen to be living. After all, you would never think you were sufficiently well-educated if you only spoke to people who live within 50 years, 50 miles of where you were born. Why would you think you were sufficiently educated if you only speak to people who live within 50 years of when you were born? That it's, uh, that the widest possible circle of the best conversation partners include both the living and the dead. That is my broad definition of a university. How do you bring about that kind of conversation? Well, it seems to me what you do is you begin it. You see, the whole point of a conversation is you can't outline where it will end up. That's the difference between a lecture and a conversation. Presumably, when I start a lecture, I already know what the last sentence is going to be. When I enter a conversation, I haven't a clue what the last sentence may possibly be. The conversation takes a life of its own. And the only way in which to experience conversation is to plunge into it. A lovely description from the uh, distinguished uh, contemporary theologian David Tracy at the University of Chicago, recently retired, um, quote, as the classical model for conversation of the Western tradition, the Platonic dialogue, makes clear, real conversation occurs only with the individual conversation partners move past self-consciousness and self-aggrandizement into joint reflection upon the subject matter of the conversation. The back and forth movement of all genuine conversation, an ability to listen, to reflect, to correct, to speak to the point, the ability in some to allow the question to take over is an experience which all reflective persons have felt. Authentic conversation is a relatively rare experience, even for Socrates. 
Yet when conversation actually occurs in a chance meeting, a discussion with friends and colleagues, a particular seminar session, it is unmistakable. The demonstration that conversation is possible is the fact that we do it. But in order to do it, we need places, opportunities, and encouragement to do it. We need someone who, as it were, stands at the door and says, no, 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 you haven't got the right to walk out of this conversation. You haven't got the right to duck that question. You haven't got the right to leave that issue untreated. Let's go back and talk about it some more. That, I suggest to you, is what is needed in the contemporary university. It, the insistence that we at least attempt to speak to one another, that we talk to one another across disciplines, that we address the great questions of human existence, and that we do it neither, as Newman would say, in a viewy way, oh yes, this is what I think about that, or, and neither do we do it in a way that is, as it were, colonizing other people's fields for our discipline. Oh, the answer to that, really, we theologians know the real answer to that. We'll let you economists and political scientists and philosophers and mathematicians and historians, we'll let you talk to one another, and then how about 20 minutes from now, we'll give you the answer. If, if, if people come to the table convinced that their field already possesses the answer, no conversation will take place. And conversation is not just the tool of the university, it is, I would suggest to you, the nature of the university. It's what the university is, rigorous and sustained conversation. What has this to do with the Catholic university? If this is true of all universities, if this is what makes any university to genuinely be a university, what's the point of a Catholic university? Well, let me offer a, um, a kind of sideline that will come back into what we're talking about. For a moment, we're going to digress. You're going to say to yourself in the next five or 10 minutes, this is all well and good, Himes, but what has it got to do with the point? And just at the point that you're about to despair, over the hill, when you least expect it, like the cavalry coming to the rescue, will be the topic. What we're talking about. Be patient. Let me suggest to you a particular perspective on what makes Catholicism Catholic. If I had to say, after all, there are many ways of being Christian, there are many rich approaches to the Christian tradition, what's the hallmark of Catholic Christianity? I suggest to you it is above everything else what I would describe as the sacramental principle. And what is the sacramental principle? Well, here's the second of Hives' handy-dandy definitions uh, for the day. I gave you one for a university. Now my definition of, a sacrament, of the sacramental principle. The sacramental principle is that which is always and everywhere the case must be noticed, accepted, and celebrated somewhere, sometime. What is always true has got to be you have to attend to it, you have to notice it, you have to say yes to it, you have to accept it, you have to celebrate it somewhere, sometime. After all, those things which are always and everywhere the case are the things that we are most likely to not to notice. You never think about the oxygen in a room until the oxygen begins to grow scarce, until the air begins to grow stale. You never think about your heart beating until it doesn't then you don't think about it at all, but we'll think about it when we slump to the floor. Uh, 
Some years ago, I was hit by a bout of Bell's palsy, and I couldn't move the left side of my face. And it meant that, among other things, that I had to tape my eyes shut when I went to sleep at night. And throughout the day, I had to periodically remember to manually close my eyelid to keep the, the orb of the eye moist. Uh, you don't think about blinking. Who thinks about blinking? I mean, uh, it, 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 you know, I'm always afraid to ask this question. You know, I'm, I'm tempted oratorically to say, how many times have you blinked since I began speaking this afternoon? There's always the fear that someone at the back will say 4,872. <laughs> um, but think about blinking. Who pays attention to it until something calls it to our attention, like the inability to do it? Then it becomes very important indeed. That which is always and everywhere true is the thing we tend to take for granted. We don't pay any attention to it. And we need to pay attention to it, celebrate it, and accept it somewhere, sometime. It's like, for example, when you celebrate someone's birthday, when you tell them that you love them on their birthday, that certainly doesn't mean that the other 364 days of the year you couldn't care less about them. What it means is, because I love you all the time, sometime I've got to tell you. Sometime I've got to call it to your attention. I've got to call it to my attention. At some point, we ha I have to notice this and accept it and celebrate it, and that's what we're doing when we celebrate your birthday. It's not because this isn't true the rest of the time. It's because it's always true that sometimes it has to be noticed, accepted, and celebrated. That, I suggest to you, is the sacramental principle. Now, what is it that the tradition is insisting is always and everywhere true. It is the self-giving of God. Everything that exists, exists for what reason only? God loves it. What isn't loved doesn't exist. That seems to me very deep within the Christian and indeed within the Hebraic claim. What, do, what isn't loved simply isn't. The opposite of being, uh, the, the opposite of being um, loved is not, is not damnation, it's non-being. What isn't loved simply isn't there. Everything that exists exists because it's loved. You see, there is no other reason for it to exist. With all due respect to my Jesuit colleagues at Boston College, you know, one of the great Jesuit mottos is ad maiorem dei gloriam, for the greater glory of God. Well, that's a wonderful description of why we might act. It would be a terrible description of why God acts. God doesn't need greater glory. Thank you very much. God's got tons of the stuff. God doesn't know what he's going to do with all the glory he's got. He hasn't got room for it in the closet. He's never going to eat it all. He doesn't know what to do with all that glory. God does not need creatures to tell God that God is good. God has noticed. God does not need creatures to tell God that God is, is a great. God thinks so too. God doesn't need creatures at all. There is nothing that we give to God that God needs. God, after all, is God. So why do we exist at all? Why is there anything other than God? And the answer is, if it's not that it gives something to God, it's that God gives something to it. It exists so that God can give something to it. And there are really only two possibilities. Either God gives something that isn't God, but that's simply more creation, or God gives God. Everything that exists, exists so that God can communicate God's self to it. What do we call that 
gift of God, that self-communication of God outside the Trinity. It is a, a third handy-dandy definition. It is what we mean by the word grace. That's what grace is. Grace is the self-communication of God beyond the Trinity. So what the tradition is claiming is everything that exists exists because it's in grace. The whole thing rests on grace. If I may use a favorite image of mine uh, from somebody who would hate to be quoted by a Catholic theologian in a theological lecture, uh, namely Bertrand Russell. Uh, but Russell, in his memoirs, has a wonderful story. He has a lot of good stories, but this is what I particularly like. Russell, in the 1920s, had become very well known as somebody who was and a wonderful communicator of the new science. People had become sort of aware after World War I that just prior to the First World War, something big had happened in the sciences. And they, they kind of knew that name Einstein, and they heard this business about relativity, but most people weren't too sure what it was all about. And Russell was superb in his ability to introduce people into the new physics, the new science. And so he gets invited to many places to speak, and he's invited on one occasion to a village in England where he goes and gets to the village hall and gives his talk, and it's very well received. And at the end, he said, now, are there any questions? And at the back of the hall, an elderly lady put up her hand. I must confess, I have a picture of Miss Marple in my mind, you know, somebody in sort of tweeds and sensible Oxfords. This elderly lady stood up and said, young man, you have it all wrong. The world's not like that at all. The world rests on the back of an immense elephant. Ah, said Russell, realizing that the village eccentric. Um, and of course, in England, they breed eccentrics like other people breed racehorses. Um, the, uh, he said, uh, on the back of a great elephant, madam, what does the elephant rest upon? And she said, the elephant stands on the back of an immense turtle. Ah, he said, and the turtle, madam, stands on? To which he says, she replied, oh, you can't get me that way, young man. From that point on, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> well, I've always loved that image of turtles all the way down. In a certain sense, what I'm suggesting to you is it's grace all the way down. It's grace on top of grace on top of grace. It's all the self-communication of God. Everything is called into existence by God's gift of God's self to it. If that's true, if grace is omnipresent, if grace is what undergirds your existence and mine and the chair you're sitting on and your pet cat and your favorite rhododendron and a little pebble on the third moon of Jupiter and some little crustacean scuttling across the Marianas Trench of the Pacific at this moment, if everything rests on grace, absolutely everything in the universe rests on grace, then somewhere, sometime, we have to notice it, accept it, and celebrate it. That which is always the case must be noticed, accepted, and celebrated somewhere, sometime. The sacramental principle. The sacramental principle insists if you see anything for what it really is, if you see anything in its deepest depth, you will be seeing the self-giving of God. You will be seeing God's self-communication. You, you will be witnessing grace. 
the single most beautiful statement of this I know of the English language is from Gerard Baddeley Hopkins, the great 19th century Jesuit poet, who in one of his most anthologized poems, Harag uh, at Harvest, describes the situation as he's, it's harvest time, it's the fall of the year, and he's walking back to the Jesuit residence one day and he's lamenting the fact that it's, uh, the summer is over and the winter is coming on and he's not looking forward to the winter. And suddenly he stops and says to himself, wait a moment, look at, look at the beauty of the foliage at this time of year. Look at the joy of the harvesters, people bringing in the harvest. Look at the wonderful way those clouds scud by with the wind coming in off the Irish Sea at this time of the year. And then in the penultimate line of the poem, he says, these things, these things were here and but the beholder wanting. Magnificent line. These things, they're all here. The foliage didn't change at that moment. The harvest didn't begin at that instant. The, 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 those clouds scudding by, that wasn't something brand new. That was, it was there. What has changed? Before he didn't notice, and now he does. What was wanting was a beholder, someone to see it, someone to notice it, someone to, uh, to observe it and accept it and celebrate it. It's the most beautiful statement of, the, of what I'm calling the sacramental principle I know. These things, these things were here, and but the beholder wanting. Well now, as I promised you, you are undoubtedly saying to yourself, oh dear God, how does this fit into what he was saying about a university? We're going to be here all night while he gets back to the point. No, I'm going to take a quick shortcut to the point right now. The point is, this I suggest to you is the role of the Catholic university. The Catholic university is not something other than what every university is. It is the place that is conscious of being what every university is supposed to be. The Catholic university should be the sacrament of what universities are. It is what every university is, but it is it consciously, deliberately, that notices, accepts, and celebrates what it is to be a university. In the conviction that that deep-rooted conversation, when you experience it, will be an experience that leads you to grace. Now, you don't have to call it grace. You don't have to ever refer to it as grace. You don't have to think of it or understand it as grace. But grace is what it will be. It's what is, uh, what is there to be discovered when we enter into the conversation. You see, this kind of conversation is not peculiar to Villanova or Boston College or Fordham or St. Joseph's or, or Notre Dame. It's not peculiar to a Catholic context at all. If it were, then these would not be real universities. They'd be catechetical schools. And that's what Newman says they're not supposed to be. They're seats of, of learning and science, of literature and science, not seats of religious instruction. We're not part of what, of, of the, the, in that sense, we're not uh, an agency of the pastoral life of the church. That's not what a university is supposed to be. I, I cannot refrain from putting this in at this moment, parenthesis. I've often been asked by bishops over the years, what's wrong with these Catholic colleges and universities? Why do so few of their graduates continue to go to mass every Sunday after they graduate? And I always say to them, Bishop, you had them for 18 years in parishes that you were responsible for staffing. If you couldn't turn them into Catholics in 18 years, why do you think we will in four? 
because you flubbed your task, don't expect us to pull your chestnuts out of the fire. That's not what we're about. We're not an agency of the church. We are proud to be part of the church's tradition, but we have our own mission. And that mission is the formation of what Newman describes as gentlefolk. People who engage in genuine conversation. People who can engage in conversation with one another without bullying, without badgering, without undercutting, without, uh, without trying to colonize one another's fields. People who are genuinely willing to learn from one another with respect and in the conviction that there's something there to be learned. Because the very experience of the conversation is what justifies it. You see, conversation, it seems to me, is very much like listening to Mozart. What good is Mozart? Listening to, will listening to Mozart make you wealthier? Will it make you stronger or healthier, more popular? Will it get you a job? Will it make the United States more competitive, as the president suggested in that quote that I mentioned at the very beginning of my talk this afternoon? Mozart, listening to Mozart will do none of that. So what does listening Mozart, do listening Mozart do for you? What's Mozart good for? And the answer is, it isn't good for anything. It's just good. It's, it's about being beautiful. Not being useful. Usefulness is a great thing. But it's not everything. Mozart is valuable simply because it is what it is. Not as a tool to something else. The experience of Mozart's music is what justifies Mozart's music. And I suggest to you the experience of conversation is what justifies conversation. Conversation isn't a tool for something else. Conversation is an extraordinary experience. An experience in which we recognize that we are who we are only by interchange with one another. It's like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance. For, for those depressingly young members of the community. They used to be in the movies, uh, Fred and Ginger. Uh, it's like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance. Neither one can do it alone. Together, they do something that would have been possible for either of them. That's what happens in a conversation. It leads us, God knows where, to discover God knows what. But it's what makes universities so important. If the students at our universities, if the students here at Villanova and at BC, when they graduate, are people who know that they once were part of a grand conversation and who saw their faculty and their administration model that kind of grand conversation for them, if they once glimpsed it, we'll have given them a gift beyond anything we could ever have done, beyond, the, beyond value, beyond any job they could ever get. We will be, we'll be doing something of immense importance in itself, and incidentally, we would be making John Henry Newman very proud of us. Thank you very much.